the humiliation of what it is just to even go through booking and being processed into jail and, and state facility can be very humbling. But I think what really clicked with me in terms of finding the kind of humility that is, we are all human beings and should look at each other that way, was probably when I standing out on the side of the road with a sign asking people to help and seeing how many didn't even see someone there suffering. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. And a blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Well, I would like to introduce Tracy Brumfield. She is the founder of Rise, which she's going to share with us what that means. It's a newsletter. But she also was the 2017 recipient of People's Liberty Hale Foundation Fellowship. Yeah, that's that's pretty much the right way to say it. Did I say it okay? <laughs> yeah, right, it's great. a mouthful, but yeah. Okay, perfect. Tracy, well, first of all, tell us about Rise, and then I'm dying to hear your story because okay. I've heard it's pretty amazing. All right, well... <clears throat> Well, Rise at its core is a newspaper that is created and published for the incarcerated community, um, specifically county jails. Um, jail and prison are very different, um, and we can talk about that if you want. But, um, but yeah, so Rise is a newspaper that is allowed to be distributed in, in there and provides valuable reentry resources. So whether someone needs um, a safe place to go, or food, clothing, anything that they may need upon re-entry that they don't know where to have access to, we list these in our newspaper. And uh, basically its purpose is to help people plan for getting out. Okay, and so what made you think of this? How did you come up with this idea? <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's really where my story kind of starts. Um, so... Um, I have substance use disorder, um, specifically opiate and heroin addiction. And as it progressed through my life, um, I did catch um, a criminal charge for drug possession. Uh, that was in 2010. Which happens a lot. Well, we're, happening it, we're seeing it happen increasingly more often because, you know, when you have a drug that is creating the largest national health crisis that our country's ever seen, mm -hmm. um, very few people are unaffected by it, whether it be directly or indirectly. So that means we're seeing a huge influx of individuals who are charged, which, by the way, is a felony charge, so different from a misdemeanor and follows you the rest of your life. Okay, so um, what other substance substances would be a felony charge what's a felony charge and what would be a misdemeanor like would a dui be a misdemeanor actually a dui is a misdemeanor why um, i know it seems i don't know if a whole lot of people know that or understand that um it's still actually kind of behind my beyond my comprehension i think it's began with because alcohol is legal and while it's not uh, while it's not legal to operate heavy machinery or especially a car where you could uh, potentially not just hurt yourself but others, um, it's still considered a misdemeanor. Um, very, very different than a felony. Um, what about marijuana? 
Um, marijuana is a misdemeanor. Marijuana is a misdemeanor? It is. Um, Anything cocaine? That, no. So essentially, and I'm not an attorney and I don't understand all the law, but my understanding is that any controlled substance. Okay. So this would include... Um, you know, certain prescription medications, and then, of course, illegal, even if considered recreational drugs, uh, other than marijuana, which would be cocaine, methamphetamine, you know, heroin, ecstasy. Um, That's all a felony. Those are those are those carry all felony charges. Okay. That's correct. So how old were you when you started using? Well, um, and using it was I was prescribed um narcotic pain medication because I began having really severe migraines about the age of 22. Okay. Um, and uh, my whole family gets them. Um, but, you know, the first thing I did after realizing I had them, you know, semi-chronically, um, was to seek out a doctor. You know, my doctor had sent me to a specialist and, you know, understanding the severity, you know, of where they are and understanding and specializing in migraines. He um, he prescribed me narcotic pain medication. And and frankly, at the time, it, it really was anything that would give me, the only thing that would give me relief. Yeah. But um, the nature of opiates is that you always need more and more to achieve the same analgesic effect. So even if I'm not abusing it, what one did for me three years ago, I, I'm may need to have doubled or even tripled that dose to have the same effect. Um, so um, essentially, you know, addiction is progressive and chronic. So, right. Same with alcoholism. Yeah. I mean, it gets worse. Um, you need more and more right. of it, you know, and uh, it doesn't ever go away. You can keep it in remission, but but you live with that. And, right. Uh, so... So, yeah, so it was really the progression of my disease to the point where, um, you know, even just obtaining and, and possessing this particular drug is a felony offense, you know, so. Okay, so you got arrested. So you're taking that chance all the time. Right, Yeah, right. absolutely. So I got arrested, um, you know, hugely embarrassed, scared, not sure it was going to happen. First time that you ever probably go to jail. Absolutely, yeah, it was the first time I ever had, yeah, any charge. Of any kind, um, it was extremely frightening, overwhelming, and um, I think at the time in there it wasn't about frightening of what it felt like to be in there, like that I was intimidated or scared. It was the frightening part came from me seeing the dominoes of the barriers actually not falling down, but being put up in front of me. I mean, and 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 they were all around. So give me an example. Um, just even with a bachelor's degree, get employment with a felony charge, particularly of heroin possession. Right. Okay, so you get arrested, you get out, and that's when reality hits you like... Yeah, I mean, so it was my first charge. Um, It qualified for this litany of things that make you eligible for treatment in lieu of conviction. Okay. So Hamilton County has uh, a drug court. 
Um, and that means that a lot of these types of cases are, are remanded over to one judge. Okay. And she oversees essentially what's known as drug court. Okay. And Hamilton County is in Cincinnati, Ohio. We've got some listeners outside of Cincinnati. Absolutely. So and that can be very confusing. Yeah. And, mention and, that. And with a multitude of things, including funding for projects and things like that. There's the city and the county lives with, you know, the city is within the county limits. So it can make it difficult in terms of all kinds of things. But, yes, Hamilton County um, has a drug court. So if you're arrested in Hamilton County, okay. same thing with any other county, you would have those county county charges unless you're looking at a federal offense of something. Um, but anyway, um, obviously I jumped at the chance and the opportunity to make this go away. But, um, you know, it was – it's very different – now than it was then but at the time there was one way to recovery and it was their way and you had to do it this this and this way what year was that i'm sorry what year was that so i began um outpatient treatment in december or in not december but i think fall of 2010 okay so i got my charge in early that year and then began the outpatient program process there okay um went through it was very difficult for me because, you know, what we're seeing now as evidence-based best practice for particularly open and heroin addiction, um, those best practices weren't known in incorporated. In, and even to what degree they were known, they certainly were incorporated in that curriculum. Okay. So my disease had progressed over the course of two decades. You know, I, I needed... A different kind of treatment and so having failed continuously at, at my attempts to do it their way um, was seen I think more as defiance than actual a sickness that needed more treatment mm -hmm. um, so essentially any failing any shortcoming whether it was behaviorally or actual or actual kind of a lapse or a relapse I was put back in jail again every time you you know, have right? Because of like it, probation, like well, that kind it, of stuff. Yeah, it's a it's a probation. It's considered a probation violation, and it their words for it were called therapeutic incarceration. Essentially, trying to shock you and you, hey, remember you don't want to be back here. Remember how horrible this like was like. Scared straight. Kind yeah, of essentially. Stuff. Yeah, so you'd be put in for a night or two, back out into the same program that wasn't working for you to begin with, and um, I. Eventually, was then remanded to a ninety-day residential program run by the courts. Okay. Um, and then, following that, another three months in sober living, transitional living. So all told, six months away. So you know, at this point, I'm losing my apartment. I'm losing my car. I mean, I, right. I, I can't work. I've lost job. So, to whatever degree of the things that I did have prior to that, there you consider those now gone. Um, you're not working, so you're not paying bills, so your credit is shot. So anything you may have had going into this program or had been just even holding on to because of the progression of your disease, if you were maintaining a level of functionality that included even the basest of things, which is a safe place to live, that's gone. You know, so now it's get out and like, okay, well, let's see if we can, you, you can do this again. And it's like, well, you've actually exasperated whatever you attempted to do in these six months intensive residential you've 
taken away my reentry support. You've not assisted me with maintaining that while I was gone. Therefore, now I come out and I have even more barriers. So, um, you know, to no one's surprise, I didn't make it. Right. Um, however, for me, I wasn't really seeing it from that perspective. I was just over here going, "Why can't I get it? Why, can, yeah. you know, why, why I'm seeing people get it? Why not me?" Why can't and it, I? You know, it propagated that self-defeatist kind of mentality, and um, to the point where her final punishment for my inability to do it right was to send me to prison for six months. Okay. So it was a wrong, a really, really long process, and at the end of it, it was just punitive and just go to prison. So when you got to prison, are you able to get drugs when you're in prison? Like, can you still use? Um, I certainly didn't or didn't have access to this. I mean, you know, I had never seen anybody actually use it any drugs behind those walls other than like a smuggled in cigarette or something oh, or okay. you know something like that but right. um, I know there were people who you know inmate.com oh so and said said so and said somebody got I didn't see that kind of drug okay. use um, either in the two Department of Corrections uh, facilities I was in in Ohio or the jail um, I know it happens but it wasn't part of my experience or what I saw. So were you getting um, support in there, or were you white-knuckling it? Well, there's actually, I think, it, that's a loaded question. Um, in terms of support, um, I was seeing a mental health professional, which if you consider a video visit once a month, a, you know, mental mm-hmm. health support, but... I, will, I did have access to medications um, that I think did help. Okay. Um, that could kind of even it out uh, while you it, detoxed? It, it, well, and I wasn't detoxing. Actually, when I had gone to prison, I mean, I had had these long periods of sobriety where I was really, really trying and doing it their way. Yeah. So when I went in, I, I wasn't dependent on, the, on it, so I wasn't withdrawing. Okay. I had had lapses, you know, but it didn't mean I went back out for two months and then I needed to detox. Okay. Um, there are many who do detox behind bars, and I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, but right. that wasn't part of my story. Okay. Um, yeah, so, you know, being in those institutions and the kinds of things I saw, it stabilized me to a degree in that I um, was in a structured environment more so than like say a drug court situation um i was getting some mental health treatment minimal as it was and however at the time there wasn't really re-entry planning okay um as i was leaving they were starting like a re-entry housing unit for people that had like maybe 90 days or less to try and help think they need a lot longer than that and I think I need that they need a lot more linkage services right when they walk out but um, again part of my story was that there wasn't anybody really helping me with those kinds of things and that was your spark yeah it it planted a seed for me absolutely to understand where there were some systemic gaps but I don't think it didn't become on my radar of really understanding until you know, I got recovery. I started volunteering in the jail. I 
you know, started working for a treatment center. And um, it hit me that, you know, we go in and we help these X amount of women every week, you know, and I provide, you know, peer support and talk about my experience. And, you know, we try to help link them with places when they get out. But that's 16 people out of a 1,400 plus population that we have here in Hamilton County that is incarcerated. Wait, say that one more time. Um, we have, in this, just the Hamilton County Justice Center alone, there's over 1,400 people. You know, typically the average arrest is 100 a day, bookings in. Oh, my goodness. The average release is about 80 a day. Um, the sheriff himself uh, has, you know, called a state of emergency last year about the level of overcrowding that's going on in there. And that's where, you know, for me it's like, why don't we have more pre-arrest diversion programs? Why do we not have the ability to say, oh, you're sick, you're not really a criminal, you're sick, so why can't we funnel those people into um, into treatment rather than to just lock them, you know, give them a felony charge, put them away for however long, and then expect them to succeed when they get out? So interestingly, before you today, um, Maris Harold, who is the chief of police for University of Cincinnati, mm-hmm. she is uh, – we didn't speak specifically about substance abuse. We did a little bit. But um, she's all about prevention because – I forget how she put it, but violent crime is very low, mm-hmm. and yet we incarcerate so many people, and it, none of it's most of it is not for violent crimes, and that's what right. she was talking about. Right. Well, and that's and that's the problem. You know, if we are exceeding safe capacity in in our jail, and some of that is due to the state's mandate of not sending certain crimes to prison because they're overcrowded. Mm-hmm. So it's becoming this just this huge funnel and people are getting stuck. And it's like, it's, you know, it's not to make the the funnel in wider so we can have more jails and incarcerate more right. people and put them more through the criminal justice system. It's to not put that many in to begin with. And that's, you know, again, to have deflection programs where police officers have the directive to be able to get someone help as opposed to oh, you have a little bit of this on here. I can see there's some in this. We're going to send this. You know, how you need help. And if you want help, let's get you a system navigator or a peer who can come right now, help link you to services, or at the very least keep you alive until until that next business day or whenever. Because my initial perception was that we didn't have the infrastructure to provide treatment to everybody that wants it. That's not true. We actually do. Really? We do. And it's just educating people about what's best practice, um, understanding that um, there are places that aren't such a barrier for you to get to if you're near any kind of bus line. You know, that there there is an infrastructure there. Can we do better at linking people to it? Absolutely. Um, But I don't think – I don't think – those who maybe look at and refer or cops or somebody and say, I know of A, B, or C, or, you know what I mean? Or mm-hmm. at the very, or they're not even giving that opportunity and they're just putting them in handcuffs and letting the judge decide what happens with them. Right. We still have a lot of ignorance within our judicial system. We have um, ignorance in probation and then the way that people are, you know, the reporting requirements, say, for a mother of two who doesn't have a car could make it so that 
oh, if she can't make, you know, this appointment, that appointment, she's already locked up. It's, it's, it's insanity. We're seeing sick people, you know, being essentially criminalized. So what was the tipping point for you? When did you realize that you wanted to start Rise? Well, I, I guess I, I got a little bit off track there, but I guess that's, that's no, what I meant. No, because I'm taking you was off that track. There, because I was working with 16 women and there's 1,400 people in the jail. And it's like, who's helping them? Who's providing them reentry resources? Who is telling them stories of hope or people that have say, I, I've, I've not just have, you know, substance use issues. I have a criminal history. I have a criminal charge. I've been homeless. I know what it's like to go out to nothing. And, and there's a way out. And it's not easy, and it's going to take a hell of a lot of work and, and tenacity and, on your part, but it can be done. And so I had the idea, well, the only way um, logistically um, that we would be able to distribute anything to the currently incarcerated would be through a newsprint medium. Okay. Um, you know, they don't have tablets in there. They, they don't, don't have, have internet. They don't have okay. phones. They can't even watch local news. So, so by way of my relationship with jail, jail staff over the course of that year and a half that I've been going in volunteering, I kind of just took this idea and said, you know, what would you think about it? And would it help? And they gave the indication that they could potentially be supportive. Literally that same day, a lady told me about People's Liberty, who I'd never heard of before. And I looked up, and there was 10 days left in the hell application window. And I just, they make it, the application really accessible to anybody. It's pretty just non-intimidating. Um, I filled it out. And maybe explain and what that what that fellowship gives you oh well let, let me explain so <laughs> go to people's liberty um dot org and check out all the amazing grants that they give um but the top two are the one hundred thousand dollar uh health fellowships which are year-long sabbaticals you can't be working or going to school or doing anything during that year it is essentially a year for you to get paid to and get funded and supported to do this bold idea, whatever that may be. And so, um, you know, they they care about a lot of different things, community development, human services, you know, arts and culture, uh, education. They have a lot of things that they care about in the community. And so the idea for RISE, you know, I think touched on a lot of points that, that they care about. And so... I was fortunate enough that they selected the project for last year's uh, award, and ever since then, it's just been a a fast-paced journey to making this come alive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you had mentioned that the newsletter is in jails, but it's not in prisons. Why did you uh, say that? What? Why did you? Why were you definitive on those two things? Well. <clears throat> You know, long-term strategy would be, you know, for Rise to have, like, a prison edition or even a juvenile edition. Um, By the way, I worked in juvenile detention. I worked at... 2020. 2020. Yeah. There you go. And so you see a lot of, a lot of high, um, you know, high-risk youth. And part of that has become a generation that has had absent parents 
due to this epidemic. So again, you see the dominoes falling the other way, right? So yeah. um, it's just another cycle, <clears throat> right? But so jail is where you've just, you've been charged. Um, you're awaiting arraignment, bond, trial, sentencing, um, prison. You have been sentenced. You you've you've you know, gone before a judge and or a jury of your peers. You, everything's been decided. It's permanent. You're guilty. This is your sentence, and this is how long you have to serve. Where jail is this this kind of limbotic Limbo. situation where one doesn't really know what's happening. Uh, the average stay is about forty days. So, and is it at a like? Is it typically at a crossroads for people where it like? Um, do they have more hope at that point? Um, or is there no difference? Um, well, I think, I think it, I mean, everything is individual, but I think that for me, hopelessness is not feeling like you have choices, that you are trapped in either a lifestyle or uh, uh, a situation or an environment, and you don't know how or haven't learned and thus may have the perspective that there are no choices because you don't know what they are um on the other hand there are those who like myself kept trying and trying and trying and trying and just didn't understand because i didn't understand my disease at the time enough to know that it is not this moral choice of am i willing or um how bad do i want it it's um it is a physiological, you know, effect on on a brain that symptoms of which are behavioral right. and nature. And so, any addiction, regardless of the substance or thing, um, it that doesn't matter. It's a behavioral disease, almost like you know we we talk about and we acknowledge OCD. So those who might need to touch this table over and over, right? right. Or maybe someone with Tourette's who can't help the reaction, right? I have no, I make no apologies for making the same comparison with AOD um, behavioral symptoms when one is perhaps stealing when that's not who they are or in line with their their, their moral character. Um, someone who is um, more even than men, women, some of the things that they will do to earn money, yes. to feed their addiction. These are not things that one would choose in a right state of mind. Correct. It's this, you know, the behavior and the compartmentalization of the things that happen during that behavior. A lot of people have PTSD because of these issues right. going untreated, but they get stuffed down as you're a piece of shit. You're a junkie. You're junk. You're trash. You're junk. You're just trash. You know, and and that's a really terrible word when I think about it. I never thought of the word junkie. Yeah, right. And really, like the root of that word is really terrible. You're just trash. You're, you're just throwaway. You throw away. You're throwaway. When you so, yeah, you're, you're you're labeled that, and again, is the stigma in the community is definitely a huge barrier, but the ignorance and stigma within the community is even greater. And that's what's unfortunate. It's still our number one treat, uh, barrier to treatment. Um, and even what is our number one barrier to treatment? Stigma. Mm. 
Do you know Kurt Platt? I know of Kurt. We haven't officially met. I know we well, worked above uh, me at PL for you know the better part of a year, but our paths never crossed. You worked above People's Liberty. Is that what you said? PL. Yeah, his his our his architectural firm, firm is, is above, above that. So he's been a guest on here. Oh, fantastic! Yes, um, and man, is he a warrior that's, against this epidemic? That's and what's up. What I love about him is that. Um, there's always some hope and inspiration in everything that he says. Yeah. And I think that's what Rise gives people, too, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, and I think at its core, even just looking at our organization now as a nonprofit and the paper itself, which Rise stands for Reenter Into Society Empowered. Um, oh, I love that. Thank you very much. I think, you know, at our core, our mission is hope and help, you know. Because, again, um, hope is feeling like there's choices and that you have real people who are identifying with being in your seat who have made it out the other side. So to inspire one with the hope that they can, too, and then to back that up with the help and a roadmap for them to, to get there. And, you know, I've had a lot of naysayers along the way who said, you know, well, you can lead a horse to water and blah, blah, blah. Um, people who typically have the overall thinking that someone with this disease doesn't really find recovery, that it's not long-lasting. Um, but to them, I say it's more than leading them to water. It is letting them know there is water. Mm-hmm. And I think there's so few people who realize that there's water, you know, and and then once you have that hope and you know that there are choices for you to have it in one place as opposed to feeling like you have to either rely on other people to link you to that or that that isn't an option or you didn't know fully of what maybe an agency did or, or covered so that hopefully it empowers you with you know, self-efficacy and, you know, desire to to want to rise up. <laughs> oh, my God. That was perfect. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I mean, I try to – I do my best in every situation when anyone is willing to listen about the story or the journey to, to try things – succinctly as I can because I can go off on a tangent but well I I feel like I mean the fact that you probably have had to give this you had to give your story and and you had to pitch people's liberty too well I I honestly have looked at it as uh, the opportunity to share the story right yeah more so than have to have talked anywhere it's a good reframe but people's liberty was this you know, they were so much more le- less intimidating than I would have anticipated. Kind of those who I've run past in my old professional career who, you know, still would look down upon the common person or look down on someone who doesn't have a lifestyle or whatever. But people's liberty is the exact opposite. You know, everyone there is so humbled and down to earth, and they. Are, they love their jobs because their jobs is helping people, helping other people make their dreams come true. And that culture was so inspiring for me. And it, 
you know, when I was meeting a, a CEO or a mayor or somebody like that. Can I you just, say what your previous p- profession was? Oh, okay. Well, so I guess just to let you know a little bit, because this is to also be a PL. You know, it's one thing to have this great idea, but are you the person who can actually make this happen? So right. in my previous life prior bef- to my addiction, making it um, me unable to work, um, I worked in publishing and I worked for printers, graphic designers. Um, so in, in the publishing side, I was more about business development and working with advertisers. But um, same thing, business development for printers and graphic designers, but I had to understand those processes in order to be able to talk to intelligently to clients right. about their needs. So so I had this kind of overarching understanding of you know, the process of putting a publication together. Um, you know, and then again, that was one of the first things I did as a fellow was knowing that I had to put a team to, in place. I couldn't do this all by myself. Right. I'm not a designer. I'm not an editor. So who would be a funder for this? Well, um, right now for this year, I can thank the Carol Ann and Ralph V. Hale Jr., U.S. Bank Foundation, um, Procter & Gamble, um, Duke Energy Foundation. Wow. Um, Scripps Howard Foundation. Um, the United Way. Um, we have a couple. You've got that, some biggies. Well, we do. And again, this is all thanks to People's, People's Liberty. Liberty, Eric Abner in particular. Yes, who, who recommended uh, you today. Well, thank, and you, thank Eric. you, Eric. Shout out to Eric. Shout um, out. Yeah, who, who, you know, who, who, who he has gone in front of these foundations and said, hey, look at this project and, and, and you guys, if you can, should really help. And, and so a lot of them very, I'm impressed with have come forward to help us this year. Um, next year, that could be a different landscape. We don't know. But we're hoping that the more people hear about us and understand what we do is not just about helping people in jail. It is about creating a continuum of access to social services for those who have undiagnosed mental health issues, for those who have substance use disorder, you know, generational poverty. Mm. You know, a lot of the, the crime that we're seeing, especially here locally, is affected um, a lot in those three areas. And it's like, so we would like to, to try and help individuals to be whatever out of whatever situation they're in right now that that landed them there and the criminal behavior that they you know were doing that got them there and can do they have a choice to do something differently you know what would you what would you end with that you think would be a great inspiring story either of usually i ask the person at the end what's mm-hmm. one thing that either humbled you or brought you to your knees that you know you think would be inspiring for other people to hear but for some reason i'm wondering i mean you told your story which is inspiring so my gut is saying or it could be somebody else that has inspired you right well i think you know over the course of the humiliation of what it is just to even go through booking and being processed into a jail and, and state facility can be very humbling but I think what really clicked with me in terms of finding 
the kind of humility that is we are all human beings and should look at each other that way was probably when I standing out on the side of the road with a sign asking people to help and seeing how many didn't even see someone there suffering. It wasn't about did they give me money or it wasn't about did they do something. It's when a lady with a beat up car stops and is looking for a sweater in her back seat to give to me because it was the dead of winter. That's humanity. Um, for the person who just rolled down the window and said, are you okay? Do you have a place to go? Do you know where the shelters are? That's humanity. It wasn't about even just money or whatever. It was people that would drop, would drive by and say, we see you. Ugh. You know? And that brings a tear to my eye. It's it's changed my entire perspective on the way that I navigate life and the things that I notice and that I see. And no longer can I ever look at somebody suffering on the side of the road and not acknowledge their pain. I always when I so when I drive by, I always when I drive by, I don't look. I'll be honest, I don't want to look. You're in the vast majority of others. When I'm walking down the street downtown wherever you know mm -hmm. i will look and say hello and smile yeah. i don't know why there's a difference for me in the car i don't right. know if it's that i don't know like it bums me out to look it hurts my heart to look at them i think it's also i don't know i feel like i can't do anything for them right. that's what it is right so if, if people were to say well what could i do for that person what could i do for that person throw a bottle of water out I saw one if day somebody it. had kept had kept bottle like the um oh you know the old like milk jug mm -hmm. not milk jugs but like the two whatever liters of water right. in their back of their car yeah. and gave them water. Yeah. I carry care packages in my car that of what know, water what else toothpaste, food a, a toothbrush um, water a snack sunscreen if it's summer maybe a hat if it's winter. You know, we do this right at release program out in front of the jail as people are getting out. In addition, do you have a safe place to go and do you have a safe way to get there? I'll have bus passes on me or maybe a, a small gift card for something to eat. You know, I do that like once a month um, because I think, again, even all that we try to do inside, but sometimes the best laid plans. But if we can disrupt even that thought process that happens when you hit that door about you know, but to show that kindness and Tracy, that can I also tell you one other thing too? Yeah. Sometimes it scares me because their eyes are so they're just not there. Yeah. It's like I'm you know, I don't drink anymore. And mm -hmm. so I would say in the alcoholism world, it's like when somebody's like just mm -hmm. nobody's home. Right. Okay. Right. Um and and looking at that soul where I can't see anything anymore, I think right. that's what's hard to look at. Yeah. But then sometimes I worry if the person could be um, violent. Is that right. silly to worry about? No, I think, you know, one of the things that I definitely tell the ladies I work with, and I would say this to anyone, is, you know, trust your gut. You know, if your gut is telling you there's danger, if there's your gut telling you that something's off, pay attention to that. But I think... Um, the vast majority of, uh, would be to just see that, especially when there's nobody home, 
that is a place where they are in such survival mode and have compartmentalized all their pain and all the reality to the point where there is no light. Your smile, your act of kindness could potentially be the spark that actually brings that back. Okay. Um, and back to just quickly your earlier, th- yeah. you know, trying to look at maybe the difference of a car um, as opposed to the street. I think it's easier for us in our cars because we can look at our radios or we can look down our at phones. our phones and we can act like we're doing something else. But I would encourage you, even if you didn't feel safe and the window was up, to smile. Okay. You know, and if you have even just a copy of our newspaper rise that you keep a couple copies in your car or any act of kindness or kind word, we can never know the ripple effects that that could have in someone's day, life, outcome. Love that. We can never know. So why not choose the side of humanity and kindness? Well, I think we're going to stop on that because that was... Fantastic. Perfect Mundo. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank You're you for coming in today, it listeners. Was my pleasure. Tracy was out having a great old time with her sister last <laughs> night at a concert. Yes, I was. And she still came in after some late night partying with her sister. So thank you we for doing that. We had a wonderful that. time. I lost too much money. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> she went it. to the casino. She was <laughs> doing, playing some cards and listening to some tunes. So. That's right. Yeah. But uh, please let your um, your listeners know that they can go to riseupnews.org and check us out, see the documentary that was made by Cincy Stories um, that followed us through our fellowship year. And if they are so moved to help donate to some of the programs and even the publishing of the newspaper. That would be awesome because uh, everybody I – don't, I don't know anybody that can't say that they are have not been affected – by somebody yeah. that has an addiction, especially yeah. opioid. Yeah, or criminal charges. Or criminal charges, right. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. Thanks, Tracy. All right. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, Anna Bulky, our producer, and the incredible team at Gwyn Sound. If you liked this episode, please, please go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and write a review. 